Throughout my life, I've had a fairly consistent fascination and fear of tornadoes. Fascination because I've always been fascinated by thunderstorms in general, and tornadoes were like the extreme version of thunderstorms, the most powerful, the most breathtaking, the most unpredictable. But I also have always had a fear, maybe an irrational and unrealistic fear of twisters. I don't know where this fear came from because I've never lived where they're frequent. We only rarely get even a warning or a tornado watch here in Ottawa. We stand a higher chance of being hurt shoveling snow. But and yet, I've, always, I've had more nightmares involving tornadoes than anything else. I don't know why. However, ask anyone who's lived in a tornado alley where they're common, and they'll tell you that a fear of tornadoes is a very legitimate fear. Because tornadoes in their power can be violent and destructive, even deadly. It might be exhilarating to see one in the distance, like storm chasers do, but to have one bear down on you would be terrifying. There's nothing you can do to stop a tornado. You just run and hide as low as you can go. This this fear of unpredictable, unstoppable, powerful forces should shape what we're about to read in Scripture. Because it is in this exact context in which God finally shows up in the book of Job. Even before we read a word that God says, we should already be awestruck because of how God made his long-awaited appearance. As we saw last week, Elihu, the last human to speak, Elihu wrapped up his defense of God's greatness in a dramatic way. And it seems, as we read, that as he spoke, a turbulent thunderstorm rolled in with rain and wind and lightning. And Elihu pointed up at the storm was like, behold, God's greatness. Behold, this is incredible. God did this. Look at this. See the lightning. The storm declares God's presence. God is rising up, Job. His voice thunders wondrously. He does great, incomprehensible things. At some point, it seems like a whirlwind appeared. And Elihu said, after that, in chapter 37 of Job, he says, He loads the thick clouds with moisture. The clouds scatter his lightning. They turn around and around by his guidance to accomplish all that he commands them on the face of the habitable world. Whether for correction or for his land or for love, God causes it to happen. Hear this, O Job. Stop and consider the wondrous works of God. And then, soon after this, He concluded, he said, we 
can observe him all around, and yet we can never fully fathom him. He said, the Almighty, we cannot find him. He is great in power. Justice and abundant righteousness he will not violate. Therefore, men fear him. He does not regard any who are wise in their own conceit. And then what we've all been waiting for, anticipating. Then the Lord answered Job out of the whirlwind. Out of the whirlwind. So apparently the, the same storm that Elihu had been describing. Out of that, God answered Job. Perhaps even as a tornado loomed overhead. You can imagine it, it holding still and a voice coming from it. Even as the wind swirled and whipped all around Job and company, and debris flying everywhere, and their hair and clothes just flapping uncontrollably in the wind, them trying to hold on to anything firm just to keep from blowing away. No matter how you imagine this scene unfolding, this is how God made his entrance. And if you can picture it, this is an appropriately terrifying scene. Breathtaking, awe-inspiring, overwhelming, petrifying, except not in a bad way at all. This is such a powerful passage. I probably don't actually need to preach it. I probably could just read it to you. But I'll do my best, even though there's no way I could ever do this passage justice. If I go long, I'm sorry. At least there's food downstairs for you afterwards. All right. If you haven't already, go ahead and open your Bibles up to Job 38. Job 38, that'll be on page 443 in the Pew Bibles in front of you. And then let's also, as we open his word, let's open our hearts up to the Lord to receive from him, to hear from him. And let's ask the Lord to work on our hearts today. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, may we today stand in awe of your deeds. May we see who you are in your glory and splendor and might. And may we bow down and worship. Please, God, show us, reveal your truth to us today by your Spirit. Be doing a work in each one of us. Help us not be able to leave here unchanged. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Before we read what God says, let me remind you quickly of a few things that Job has said. So we know what God is responding to as he answers Job from the whirlwind. Okay, all through the story that we've seen, Job has wished for God to come before him to answer his cries. So in chapter 13, for instance, he asked God to speak with him, to arrange a court date with him, to hear his case in court. He said, then call, I will answer, or let me speak and you reply to me. He wants this conversation with God. But God, to Job, felt invisible. In chapter 23, he cried out, Oh, that I knew where I might find him, that I might come even to his seat. I would lay my case before him and fill my mouth with arguments. But wherever Job looked around him, he couldn't see God working anywhere. 
And in Job's final defense, he had blurted out, Oh, that I had one to hear me. Here is my signature. Let the Almighty answer me. Now, longing for God's presence or longing for God's intervention wasn't wrong. These were good things. But as Elihu has pointed out the last few weeks, along the way, Job has said some highly suspect things as well, interspersed with all the good things. His contentious questions were casting doubt on God's justice and God's goodness. So God sent Elihu as kind of a prophet to begin correcting Job, which we've seen over the past six chapters. But, and one of the things that Elihu had proven, without a doubt, was that God didn't ever need to answer Job. He said, Surely God does not hear an empty cry, nor does the Almighty regard it. How much less when you say that you do not see him, that the case is before him, and that you are waiting for him. He's saying, God's not obligated to you in any way whatsoever. The same goes for us. He's not obligated to us in any way. So what comes next is actually rather astonishing. Because God chooses to show up anyway. And two, answer Job. He didn't need to, but he does. Job's prayers are answered. And then some. He got an audience with God Almighty. However, it wasn't quite what Job expected. Job imagined himself and God having a little chit-chat. Maybe over coffee where they could just discuss and debate things, even argue if necessary. But instead of a a dialogue with God, Job got a stunning monologue from God. Job didn't get to ask any more questions. God asks all of them from here on out. And instead of a, a simple interview, Job got a searing interrogation. Instead of a a little talk over tea, he got a lecture from a tornado. God was answering Job's prayer, but Job was about to get way more than he bargained for. One more note before I keep reading. Remember that Job, the whole book, is largely written in poetry. So if you hear something that doesn't sound maybe scientifically accurate, Don't be bothered by that, okay? God uses many metaphors and similes in his speeches. They're meant to be figurative, okay? So, for example, just because God describes the earth as if it were a house or a building doesn't mean that God thinks the earth is a house, okay? So, with that out of the way, ready for this? Verse 1 again. Then the Lord answered Job out of the whirlwind and said, stop there again few quick things to take note of. First, we see God speaking directly here. So his actual voice was audibly heard. It's a very special occasion in Scripture when this happens. And we don't know what God's voice sounded like. You can use your imagination. If God was speaking over the noise of thunder and the tornado, it must have been loud. Right? Powerful. I imagine this deep, booming, thunderous roar. 
terrifying and yet gentle and kind at the same time. Like nothing we've ever heard before. Secondly, notice that God addresses Job personally. It says he answered Job, which means he had been there all along, listening in on what Job was saying. Even when Job thought he was absent, God was there, and now he answers him. God is now giving him his surprising and gracious attention. Lastly, you see again, God spoke out of the whirlwind, which adds wildness and danger to this scene. It vividly reminds us as well that God is both all-powerful and untamed. So now, listen to what the Lord's voice said to Job. Then the Lord answered Job out of the whirlwind and said, Who is this that darkens counsel by words without knowledge? Dress for action like a man. I will question you and you make it known to me. Now, interesting. God's answer to Job is made up almost entirely of questions. Job wants answers. Instead, he gets questions directed right back at him. I will question you, and you make it known to me. And in this, God uses a devastatingly effective method of putting Job in his place. However, God was not seeking to humiliate Job with his questions. He was seeking to test him, to challenge him, to teach him, even as he humbled him. But being humbled is different than being humiliated. Zelihu said, God is exalted in his power. Who is a teacher like him? Who's a teacher like him? The pupil had attempted to teach the teacher. Now the teacher was sitting the pupil down for an exam. And from what I can tell, he was teaching Job one major lesson over the next four chapters. God makes many points, of course, but they all play into one major main idea, and that is this, that we shouldn't dare to contend with Almighty God. It's as simple as that. We shouldn't ever dare to contend with Almighty God. And to contend with God is to argue or debate or blame or fight against Him, to challenge Him. It's the difference between asking questions of God and questioning God. You get that difference? You can ask questions to God, but you can't question God. Now, notice in God's first question to Job, he accuses Job of darkening his counsel. The word for counsel here is used to describe the way that God runs the universe. Okay, so it can refer to his rule, his governance, his sovereignty, his wisdom, his plans. All of that goes into his counsel. And Job, with his ignorant words, it says, had darkened God's counsel. He had obscured it, questioned it, doubted it, challenged it. So, like God had darkened the skies above Job, Job had darkened the skies of God's character. But Job didn't know what he was talking about. 
says his words were without knowledge. Job had clearly challenged God repeatedly. Now God returns the challenge. Verse 3 says, dress for action like a man. Dress for action like a man. In Hebrew, it literally means to gird up your loins, which is a lot more manly than it sounds. Girding up your loins is how soldiers got ready for battle. So men in that day didn't wear slacks or jeans. They wore tunics, which were great for the weather, but not so much for running or for fighting in. So girding your loins is a way to bunch up your tunic, tuck it into your belt, and in this way you get yourself battle ready. God basically tells Job, man up! You wanted to contend with me? Get ready. You're gonna. Other versions say, brace yourself. Job's about to learn the hard way that he should have never dared to contend with God. But Job wasn't to prepare for an actual battle. He was to prepare for a battle of knowledge. Battle of knowledge. The major theme of this passage and the other ones following this is God's wonderful knowledge. The the words for know and knowledge and understanding appear 22 times in God's speech. And here, God reveals his own knowledge by testing Job's knowledge. As we saw, who is this that darkens counsel by words without knowledge? Dress for action like a man, I will question you and you make it known to me. Now, as we continue, we might wonder why God doesn't really answer any Job's questions. Why is that? He doesn't fill Job in on the heavenly scenes that started the story with Satan and that led to all his suffering. He doesn't tell him anything about why he went through what he did. Obviously, God could have easily explained it all to Job if he wanted to. It's not a complicated story. We learned it all in two chapters at the very beginning. So why doesn't he? Well, those who get frustrated at God's not explaining things believe they actually have a flaw in their thinking. Don Carson says this about this passage. He says, these people assume that everything that takes place in God's universe ought to be explained to us. They assume that God owes us an explanation that there cannot possibly be any good reason for God not to tell us everything we want to know immediately. They assume that God Almighty should be more interested in giving us explanations than in being worshipped and trusted. The book of Job proves that even if we are great people, God owes us no explanations. Yet, God still answers Job's prayer in a bigger and better way than any explanation could have. See, by grilling Job with question after question, God is actually giving a picture of himself to Job. Job gets a picture of reality as it really is, who God is, who he is compared to who God is. That's way more valuable than an explanation could have been. See, the correct question to ask was not why, but who. Job asks why. 
God asks who. Look at verse 2 again. First question. Who is this that darkens counsel by words without knowledge? As one scholar paraphrases, who are you to question God's actions and attributes? Do you realize just whom you have been challenging? That's the gist of the final question that Job asked, or that God asked Job. Who do you think you are? With each question, God makes a declaration of who he is and who we are. Gives us a picture of that. And each one proves that we should never dare contend with God. Why not? First, because this, we are no one compared to him. We are no one compared to Almighty God. That's already seen. Who is this that darkens counsel by words without knowledge? God's making a point to Job here about how little Job is in his grand scheme of things. But God was also making a deeper implication about how great God himself is. Job was a nobody. He darkened counsel. He had words without knowledge. But God, he was the one of ultimate significance. He was everything. He had counsel and plans and knowledge that had no right to be questioned. We're going to see this pattern over and over again. God will ask a question or a set of questions, and they will imply something about us and something about God. It's a constant contrast. So first, very simply, we are no one compared to God. Next, look at God's probing question in verse 4. It says, Where were you when I laid the foundation of the earth? Tell me if you have understanding. So his question is, where were you? God's underlying point, we shouldn't dare contend with Almighty God because we have been nowhere compared to him. We've been nowhere compared to God. God asked the question, where? Where were you? Which implies a location, right? With locations, we usually think of geographic, physical locations, okay? Ottawa, New York City, South Dakota, Mexico, Switzerland, Africa, the moon, Jupiter, wherever. However, do you notice where God asked Job about having been? Not a location in space, a location in time. Uh, The creation of the world. Where were you at creation, Job? Were you there? Now, we humans seem to have a fascination with the idea of time travel. From Back to the Future, to Star Trek, to The Flash, Doctor Who, time travels everywhere. We'd love to be able to visit exotic times or places that we've never seen before or that we've only heard about in pictures or history books. Of course, even if it's theoretically possible, we know that it's largely just a fantasy. Stephen Hawking, whom I hardly agree on anything with, but he said he pointed out that if time travel were to be invented one day, then we should have already been overrun by tourists from the future. Don't think too hard about that one. But it's a good point. 
okay? We cannot witness history from before our time. It's impossible, okay? And God told Job as much a long time ago. He said, where were you when I laid the foundation of the earth? You can't time travel back there. Tell me if you have understanding. Where were you? Oh, you mean you weren't at the creation of the world? We don't even know where we were before we were conceived or born. Whether we even existed before that. And if we did exist, in what state or form we existed in. Job, you weren't there at the beginning. And you can't ever get there to know what I know. That's the implication of all this. Job wasn't there. God was. He was the one who laid the very foundations of the earth at that time. Now, we may have been a lot of places in this world. We may have seen many years go by. We've been nowhere compared to God. He's been everywhere since before time began. Can't even wrap our minds around it. Where were you when I laid the foundation of the earth? Tell me if you have understanding. Tell me, Job. I'm waiting. You got nothing? Okay, I'll keep going. Speaking of the creation of the earth, verse 5. Who determined the earth's measurements? Surely you know. Or who stretched the line upon it? On what were its bases sunk? Or who laid its cornerstone when the morning stars sang together and all the sons of God shouted for joy? Or who shut in the sea with doors when it burst out from the womb, when I made clouds its garment and thick darkness its swaddling band, and prescribed limits for it, and set bars and doors, and said, Thus far shall you come and no farther, and here shall your proud waves be stayed. Now all these verses poetically reference the time that God created the world. But they ask one main question to Job. What have you done or accomplished? Right? The implied point for us to take to heart, we shouldn't contend with Almighty God because we have accomplished nothing compared to Him. Compared to what God has done, even at creation alone, just that one event, we've done nothing. Verse 4 down to 7 is where God pictures the earth as a house or as a building project. And God was the construction foreman for the job. He was the builder. He laid the foundation. He made the necessary measurements. He drew the blueprints. He used a surveyor's line to make everything precise and level. He laid the basis for the pillars to rest on and all the all-important cornerstone. And then when he was done, he says, the angels and stars shouted and sang for joy. Wow, God. Look what you've done. Job... You were there, so you know all this, right? You notice God's sarcasm in verse 5? Who determined this measurement? Surely you know. Surely you know. Down in verse 8, God then switches metaphors. He describes creating the seas like giving birth to a baby. 
but an unruly and wild baby. It says, or who shut in the sea with doors when it burst out from the womb? Now, parents, where do you stick a small child when they're out of control? In their crib, right? Where they can't go anywhere. This is what God did with the powerful and chaotic seas. The message picks up on this imagery well. It says, And who took charge of the ocean when it gushed forth like a baby from the womb? That was me. I wrapped it in soft clouds and tucked it in safely at night. Then I made a playpen for it, a strong playpen so it couldn't run loose, and said, Stay here. This is your place. Your wild tantrums are confined to this place. So can you picture that? Picture a coastline of an ocean, maybe with cliffs along the edge, with huge breaking and crashing waves against it, uncontrollable. And then think, God constrained the oceans there. And what have we done this week? This is what I've accomplished, Job. What have you accomplished? This question asks, past tense, what have you done? What what are your achievements? His next question is present and future tense. He says, what can you do? What are your abilities? Job, let's compare job description, shall we? Here's a feature on mine. Verse 12 says, Have you commanded the morning since your days began and caused the dawn to know its place, that it might take hold of the skirts of the earth and the wicked be shaken out of it? It is changed like clay under the seal, and its features stand out like a garment. From the wicked, their light is withheld, and their uplifted arm is broken. Now, God is describing two powerful actions of his here, which are still continuing to this day. One, physically causing the sunrise every morning. And two, spiritually using the morning to judge wickedness on earth. The lesson's simple. We can't do anything compared to him. We can't do anything compared to God. Of course we can do some things. But compared to what God does, we can do nothing. Can we cause the earth to rotate on its axis just so the sun rises in our skies every day? No way. Can we be the judge of the wicked, exposing their sin and punishing them? That's God's job. Remember how at times in Job, the wicked have been described as, you could say, creatures of the night. In chapter 24, Job said, There are those who rebel against the light, who are not acquainted with its ways, and do not stay in its paths. And he says, Murderers and adulterers and others do most their dirty work under the cover of darkness. But God says here, Morning always comes. They won't get away with things forever. Eventually, the defiant and rebellious fists that they shake at the heavens will be broken. Job, can you, like a 
like a military officer, command the morning to get out of bed? Can you shake the earth out like a tablecloth to remove the crumbs of the wicked? Can you make the landscape take shape by sunlight like clay under a royal seal? This is all very poetic. And if you can understand what he's saying, it's very powerful. Every time the sun rises, it's a reminder that the darkness in our world won't last forever. We can't do what God can do. We cannot enact his judgment. We can't, nor can we enact his salvation. He, he doesn't say as much explicitly here, but we know it to be true. See, we are actually the wicked who deserve to be shaken from the earth. So this can, count, this can sound scary. But God, in his mercy, sent his son Jesus to bear his judgment on our behalf. And he, and he did so, Jesus did so as his body was broken for our sins on the cross. And then as the Son of God rose from the dead early one morning, it was the greatest promise that one day evil will be completely defeated. If we leave our wickedness and we believe in Christ and we cling to Christ, he will save us. We all must do this. We cannot insist on continuing to resist him, contending with him, because we don't stand a chance against him. And God keeps piling on the reasons why as he speaks to Job. The next question he asks could be put as, where have you been? Or what have you seen? But really, God is asking, what do you know, Job? From experience. What do you know from experience? Look in verse 16. It says, Have you entered the springs of the sea or walked in the recesses of the deep? Have the gates of death been revealed to you? Or have you seen the gates of deep darkness? Have you comprehended the expanse of the earth? Declare if you know all this. Speak up, Job. Have you seen what I've seen? Do you know what I know? Job can't answer, of course. Showing us another point that we don't know anything compared to him. We don't and can't know anything compared to God. Now, I've been on some holiday trips that were fairly educational in their scope seeing various historical sites or ancient architecture or old-time battlefields or forts. Or I've visited many museums over the years, learning all kinds of things there. Kids, maybe you've been on field trips with your school where you learn something neat and educational wherever you go. Well, everyone, have you ever been on a field trip to the bottom of the ocean? No way. Look at verse 16. Have you entered the springs of the sea or walked in the recesses of the deep? Also, 
Have you ever seen the place where the dead go? The gates of hell, even. Have you, have the gates of death been revealed to you? Or have you seen the gates of deep darkness? And because of our vast experiences, do we comprehend everything about the world? Have you comprehended the expanse of the earth? Declare if you know all this. Of course not. God's seen those places. God knows everything about them. Continuing the same kind of theme, God asked Job, where can you go? The answer is we can't go anywhere compared to him. We can't go anywhere compared to where God can go. He already asked. We can go to the deepest recesses of the ocean or even to hell now he asks more abstractly in verse 19. He says, where is the way to the dwelling of light? And where is the place of darkness that you, may, that you may take it to its territory and that you may discern the paths to its home? Now these aren't necessarily literal locations. But light originated somewhere, right? Or rather, light originated with someone now, these days, we just flick a light switch on or off, and light or darkness just appears and disappears. But remember, this is poetry. Okay? This, these verses aren't science. But how does that appear to you? Like light and darkness just go and come, come and go. Right? So where does the light go? Where does the darkness come from? And do you have a, a map or a GPS that could show you the way to their home? And listen to this sarcasm. It says, where is the way to the dwelling of light? Where is the place of darkness? Look in verse 21. You know, for you were born then, and the number of your days is great. Job, with and with what you've implied you know, you must have been born when I said, let there be light. Right? How else could you know the things that you know? You must be as old as dirt. You ever fill in a map that shows you how many countries or states or provinces you visited in your lifetime? You color in or maybe you click in all the places that you've been and it tells you how well-traveled you are. Personally, I've been to around 12 countries and around 30 states or provinces. However, I could visit all 196 countries in the world, plus the moon, plus Mars, and still not be able to go where God can go. I'll never check those places off on my map. Not in a million years. He knows the way to where light and darkness come from and where weather comes from. Look in verse 22. He says, Have you entered the storehouses of the, of the snow, or have you seen the storehouses of the hail, which I have reserved for the time of trouble, for the day of battle and war? What is the way to the place where the light is distributed or where the east wind is scattered upon the earth? Can you even imagine entering a storehouse 
of snow. I think we maybe got a storehouse dumped on us this past week. (laughs) But he says there's multiple ones, right? Storehouses. But just imagine, right? Imagine entering these big doors and you see mountains upon mountains upon mountains of snow with no end. Wow. A place where every centimeter of snow on earth came from. That's bigger than we can imagine. Now, again, these aren't likely literal locations. This is poetic cosmology that God is using. But the point is, Job hasn't been there. Right? He doesn't know the way there. He can't go there. But God can. God knows. God made it all, after all. He is the one who says, reserves some snow and hail for times of battle or war. And I don't know if this is talking about, say, the plagues in Egypt, or Nazis freezing in Russia, or Armageddon. But the point is, God controls the snow and the hail and the light and the wind, all for his purposes. He has been omnipresently everywhere in creation, even conceivable. We haven't. Speaking of being in control, that's the final question we'll see God ask Job for today. Job, what can you control? God's like, I've made many things I can control. Let's compare our sovereignty and our power, okay? Verse 25. Who has cleft a channel for the torrents of rain and a way for the thunderbolt to bring rain on a land where no man is, on the desert in which there is no man? to satisfy the waste and desolate land and to make the ground sprout with grass? Has the rain a father? Or who has begotten the drops of dew? From whose womb did the ice come forth? And who has given birth to the frost of heaven? The waters become hard like stone and the face of the deep is frozen. Job, do you control the weather? Have you ever taken a chisel and cut out canals for the rain? Do you take your watering can and water desolate desert places? Did you give birth to the water and the ice? This is what I do, what what I control, Job. This is getting more and more awe-inspiring, isn't it? And God's implied point in these questions is we can't control anything compared to him. We can't control anything compared to God. So, if rain falls in a desert and no one is there to see it, does it still rain? Yes. It says God takes care of his land, where no man is. Even if there's no benefit for us, he controls the weather. Sometimes, just out of joy of creating and giving life, says, to satisfy the waste and desolate land, to make the ground sprout with grass. He allows whole deserts to bloom sometimes. 
Death Valley in California, one of the most famous deserts in the world, is experiencing a record bloom of wildflowers right now. You can look it up. Google it. Incredible sights. God does that. God makes the deserts bloom. We can't even control how much rain or snow falls in our front yard. But God doesn't only control the weather. His sovereignty is cosmic in scope. Look in verse 31. He says, Can you bind the chains of the Pleiades or loose the cords of Orion? Can you lead forth the Maseroth in their season? Or can you guide the bear with its children? Do you know the ordinances of the heavens? Can you establish their rule on the earth? And this here is, is speaking of different constellations in the star, constellations of the stars in the sky, well, some of which are well known to us, others not so much. But have, have you ever looked up in the stars and you look for the Big Dipper or the Little Dipper? Those are parts of Ursa Major and Ursa Minor, the bear constellations. Or Orion's Belt is one of the most distinctive sights we can see in the sky, most observable, most noticeable. And it's stunning to think, if you think of those constellations in the sky, to think that each one of those stars that makes up those constellations is a ginormous ball of burning gas. Most of them could dwarf our sun. Now, who put those stars in space? Who lit their flame? Who sets their path in our skies? God. This is perhaps the most stunning display of God's power and control. He controls the stars as if they were on chains or ropes, be bound or loosed. Lastly for today, he returns to the weather. And remember, this is all spoken from a whirlwind. Verse 34. Can you lift your voice, lift up your voice to the clouds, that a flood of waters may cover you? Can you send forth lightnings that they may go and say to you, Here we are! Who has put wisdom in the inward parts or given understanding to the mind? Who can number the clouds by wisdom? Or who can tilt the water skins of the heavens when the dust runs into a mass and the clods stick fast together? Job, can you flood the earth to drown yourself? Does the lightning report to you like soldiers awaiting your instructions? It's like, can you send forth lightnings that they may go and they say to you, here we are reporting for duty. It says, who has put wisdom in the inward parts or given understanding to the mind? Now, verse 36 there, no one really knows exactly what God was saying. Maybe that's kind of the point for us. We don't know. He does. Verse 37, Who can number the clouds by wisdom? Or who can tilt the water skins of the heavens when the dust runs into a mass and the clods stick fast together? He controls it all. The clouds, the rains, and even how dust clumps into mud when it rains. A 
But God's not nearly done yet. We're going to stop there for today. There's a natural transition in the next section from inanimate creation to actual creatures in creation. But as we end, we might wonder, well, how does all of this apply to us? Because we don't want to only get a a vague feeling of being impressed. That's not all that God wants. God wanted to inspire real action from Job. And he wants the same from us. So how does it apply to us? Well, we're going to get much more into how God's speech applies to us in the next few weeks. For now, it's enough to reiterate the main point. We can't contend with God. We must not darken his counsel, casting doubt on who he is. Compared to him, our words are without knowledge. So, recognize our limitations. We need to humble ourselves beneath the mighty hand of God. We need to submit to his sovereignty, to trust him with our lives. And most of all, I'd say we need to bow the knee in worship. The fact is, this incomparably great God reaches down in love and mercy to make himself known to us. Whether from his word or from the word or from a whirlwind even. That's stunning. And we're only getting started. Let's pray. God, we thank you that even though you are so great and you are not obligated to us at all, that you love us and that you do reach down into our world and show us yourself. We're so undeserving of your care and your love, and yet you pour it out on us. We thank you today. We praise your power and your might, your strength, your wisdom and knowledge. May we stand in awe of these things, God. And may this vision of you change our hearts. In Jesus' name, amen.